Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. This is Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to be jumping into the exciting topic of lung cancer. Hope everyone had a good Memorial Day weekend if you're listening from the U.S. Or enjoyed the beautiful weather if you're listening from anywhere else. Yeah, it was beautiful weather here. We got to enjoy it on um, Governor's Island to the south of the city with a view of the Statue of Liberty in downtown New York. Very peaceful, nice way to relax after a busy week of work. We're, we're changing gears a little bit. We've just had a couple discussions on melanoma, and we're trying to cover disease sites that really revolve around immune therapy to try to keep with the theme here. So after melanoma, lung cancer would be the next area where these immune checkpoint areas have had a major role in change of management, as this is a very dense disease site, not unlike colon or breast cancer, I thought it'd be helpful to do a, a general overview uh, discussion first. So even though we have made a lot of progress in this area, lung cancer is the highest cause of death in both men and women. In women, lung cancer kills more women a y- per year than breast, ovarian, and uterine cancer combined. Worldwide, there was 2.1 million diagnoses in 2018 and uh, 1.8 million deaths. Very lethal disease. It's been a very dynamic field, though, and um, has really led the way when we talk about um, things like targeted oncology and the role of next-generation sequencing. And what used to be a very simple algorithm for managing, which is a platinum agent and a secondary chemotherapy, no matter what the lung cancer was, we've now moved into an area where some patients can get by with a single pill taken once a day and have also incorporated immune therapy into many different um, aspects of uh, lung cancer. Beyond uh, advances in treatment, uh, we've been able to improve our staging algorithms and with better imaging techniques and and workup techniques, we've been better identifying patients with with the potential for a curative approach. Altogether, these um, management regimens have increased the five-year survival from less than 10% up to about 20% range. Although these better outcomes have really improved the care of patients, it's led to a much more complicated approach and and an increasingly complex uh, multidisciplinary interventions are becoming standards of care. Getting into risk factors, as we know, smoking is the most common risk factor and is involved in about 85% of cases of lung cancer. So even though that is a lot, that still means 15% of patients will have no smoking history or minimal smoking history. There's also environmental risk factors such as minors that are exposed to radon. Radiation is another risk factor. So people that have had prior breast cancer or lymphoma and have had radiation to the lungs. Family history is less of a risk factor, although there can be some um, familial mutations that are associated with um, with developing lung cancer. Yeah, probably the most frequently discussed familial link is EGFR mutations. Maybe becoming less frequently of a high yield question because it's become so um, cliche. Maybe not completely accurate. Is the Eastern Asian female non-smoker often harbor having a higher risk of lung cancer? harboring these EGFR mutations. A lot of our patients who present with lung cancer will say, oh, why should I bother quitting smoking? I've already developed lung cancer. In terms of quitting smoking, that actually does decrease your risk of lung cancer in about 10 to 15 years after you quit. Even in patients who've been diagnosed with lung cancer, it's important to have a discussion about quitting smoking. This doesn't only prevent secondary lung cancers from developing, but it's actually been shown to have increased outcomes as far as survival and response to systemic therapy. The complete mechanisms for this is less understood. There's a lot of hypothesized reasons such as reduced risk of infections, as well as uh, vascular changes um, in active smoking when people are receiving systemic therapy. And in terms of the 15% of patients that are never smokers or minimal smokers, these are really the patients that you want to send the next generation sequencing because they're more likely to have a driver mutation. 
Although there's a lot of interest in trying to screen and catch lung cancer sooner, more than 50% of lung cancers are diagnosed in the metastatic setting. Yeah, this is especially true for small cell lung cancer, in which about 75% of cases present with metastatic disease. So some of the more common symptoms that we see in people with diagnosed with lung cancer, which brings them to medical attention, are severe fatigue, weakness, cough, anorexia, weight loss. Some other ways that they can present are from... CNS changes from an intracranial metastasis, which is a very frequent presentation of non-small cell lung cancer. Some of the more pathognomonic findings can be a pancos tumor, so the a tumor that arises in the superior sulcus, and this can cause shoulder pain as well as Horner symptoms, so ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. Loss of voice if the tumor is arising near the laryngeal nerve. The most common site of metastasis, lung cancer is brain, bone, liver, and adrenals. Now, I know in internal medicine residency, we hear the term perineoplastic syndrome a lot, and it can apply to many different types of cancer, but lung cancer is the most common cancer to present with these perineoplastic syndromes, specifically small cell lung cancer. There are a few that are associated more with non-small cell lung cancer. One of the most common thing that you'll see is hypercalcemia in squamous cell lung cancer, and this is due to the tumor-releasing parathyroid hormone-related peptide, or PTHRP. So if you have a cancer patient with new hypercalcemia, it could be due to diffuse bone mets, but you would also want to check the PTHRP to see if it's possibly due to um, a perineoplastic syndrome. And again, this is more seen in squamous cell lung cancers. The other one that's common in non-small cell lung cancer, which is more common in adenocarcinoma, is hypertrophic pulmonary osteoarthropathy, which you'll see this can come up sometimes on exams where you see a picture of clubbing of the digits. Patients can also have severe periastitis of the long bones, which really we see mostly in the wrists um, as well as the ankles. Sometimes it can also be seen in other pulmonary diseases that are not cancer. Another frequent uh, perineoplastic syndrome that's most commonly seen in small cell lung cancer and actually presents in up to 10% of patients with small cell lung cancer is SIADH, so syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone um, or hyponatremia. Some of the neurologic perineoplastic syndromes are less common but pretty profound and can be a presenting symptom that leads to someone being hospitalized. One of these being Lambert-Eaton syndrome, um, so muscular weakness. You know, Keep in mind this is separated from, for those of you studying for your internal medicine boards, different than myasthenia gravis, where repeat contractions actually lead to improved muscle activity. Uh, Another one being limbic encephalitis, and this can present as an acute psychotic episode and often can lead to delayed diagnosis, especially if the initial imaging doesn't include lung scanning. Nomic instability, uh, retinal changes are also uh, potential neurologic presentations. Some other complications of lung, non-small cell lung cancer that isn't always typically thought of as being a perineoplastic syndrome, but um, would fall under that window, this umbrella, would be anemia, leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, thrombosis or clotting. Also, patients may present with DIC, DIC being a, a poor prognostic finding for patients with um, lung cancer. Some of the more interesting ones from the standing of high-yield questions can include dermatomyositis or polymyositis with the classic heliotrope rash, Cushing syndrome, to not go on and on and on about all the different perineoplastic, I'll include one more that just I find to be very interesting, which is hypertrichosis, which is a development of very fine hairs along the cheeks or the face, um, which I've seen at least one case where that was the um, dermatologist made the diagnosis and referred to oncology upon finding that. 
Oh, yeah. And, and patchy dermatoglyphia, which is a pruny palms of the hands. Almost feels like, you know, like this little like suede over the hands that can develop. Some people also develop like significant sweating from that. Oh, I've never seen that. So once you have a patient that you suspect has lung cancer, as with most cancers, the first step is biopsy. There's really two ways that we can get a biopsy of a lung lesion. Obviously, if there's a metastatic site, then that's probably preferred to document metastatic disease. But if you just have a lung lesion, there are two ways to go about getting a tissue sample. You can either do bronchoscopy or a CT-guided percutaneous biopsy. Traditionally, bronchoscopy was done mostly for more central lesions, which makes sense because you're going you know, in through the mouth and through the trachea and the CT-guided percutaneous biopsy was done for more peripheral lesions. However, a lot of the bronchoscopy techniques have gotten more sophisticated, so many times they are able to reach those peripheral lesions. But we'll defer that to your local institution. And um, this will be directed by your local pulmonology or interventional radiology expertise because they're going to look at the location of the lesion, where it is in relationship to major vessels, and and, um, as well as uh, COPD blebs to try to make sure that they can get to the lesion safely without causing a collapsed lung. Yeah, exactly. Always a good idea to reach out to pulmonology with these lung masses of unknown origin if they haven't already been consulted. As far as staging workup, you would want to start with a CT chest and abdomen. So unlike other cancers where, you know, the default is chest CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis, you really don't need the pelvic scan for lung cancer. I learned this the hard way when ordering this multiple times as a fellow and finally the thoracic attending, you know, told me that you really only need the CT chest and abdomen because the most common site in the abdomen for metastasis is the adrenal gland, so you really only need to go down to the adrenals. This is relevant from a health system standpoint, because often there'll be one radiologist who reads the entire scan, and if the abdomen and pelvis isn't included, you may be an abdomen radiologist reading a lung cancer scan, whereas if you do just the chest and catch just the adrenals or just part of the abdomen, you'll have a your thoracic radiologist reading the scan, which will be a lot more helpful when you get to management decisions. Since brain mats are pretty common in metastatic lung cancer, most patients do warrant an MRI of brain at the at the time of diagnosis. And anybody who's being considered for definitive operative therapy or chemoradiation, so anyone who we suspect has localized disease, should get a preoperative or preradiation PET CT because it is more sensitive and more specific than regular CAT scans. So we wouldn't want to send someone to the OR who actually does have metastatic disease. The one uh, exception to this would be clinically stage one, so very small, often peripheral lesions. The chances of having distant disease at the time of diagnosis is less than 5%. Occasionally they may be considered, but often if you have access to the ability to do full body scanning and staging, it, it can save a lot of trouble down the road to do the extra testing in advance. One area where PET-CT is not as helpful are in, are in lung lesions that are less than one centimeter or ground glass nodules. Ground glass opacities often have a low um, SUV uptake, so they're not very bright on the PET scan. And tumors that are less than one centimeter are also not going to be very bright. It can be often not easy to differentiate between an infectious or inflammatory lesion and a solitary nodule versus a, a true lung cancer. Typically, these tumors spread first to the regional lymph nodes, so from the hilar lymph nodes and then to the mediastinal lymph nodes. So if you do think you have a lesion that's going to be amenable to a curative approach, um, mediastinal staging is, is essential. The two major ways that this can be done is either through bronchial um, imaging, often with an endobronchial ultrasound, where the pulmonologist will directly visualize 
um, suspicious lymph nodes and we'll take a fine needle aspirate from all that seems suspicious. Another option would be um, through a thoroscopic um, or a, a VATS procedure, video assisted thoroscopic surgery. Sometimes if the there's a peripheral lesion that's going to be resected on its own, this uh, mediastinal staging is done at the time of um, surgical resection. So staging of lung cancer does is very relevant. It does help with both prognostication and treatment selection. As we mentioned, the treatment algorithms have gotten more complex, and it becomes a lot more important to differentiate between stage 1, 2, 3, and, and metastatic stage 4 cancer. Currently, we're using the AJCC uh, version 8. The reason that matters is a lot of the clinical trials you've seen that would have been enrolling prior to 2017, which is most of the data we have now, was uh, during the HACC version 7. So you may see tumors that are listed as stage 3 that would no longer fall into that. If you're doing chart review research or very interested in the field, it's good to familiarize yourself with the older staging criteria as well as the the current standards. That being said, currently um, we are using the TNM staging criteria, um, T being based upon the size of the lesion or local invasion. So a T1 lesion being one to three centimeters, a T2 state lesion being three to five centimeters, T3 being five to seven, or T4 being greater than seven centimeters. Uh, important cutoff is in that a T2B lesion is four to five centimeters, which plays a role when we get into adjuvant systemic therapy considerations. Other than size, uh, local invasion can matter as well. A lesion that invades the main bronchus uh, would automatically be considered a T2 or greater. A lesion that invades into the chest wall, the pericardium, the phrenic nerve, or satellite lung nodules within the same lobe would be a T3 or greater. And a T- any lesion that involves the mediastinum, directly invading the mediastinum, the diaphragm, into the heart, not the pericardium, but the heart itself, or other great vessels, laryngeal nerve, trachea, or bones such as the spine uh, would be a T4 lesion. When we get into nodal staging, uh, N1 is an ipsilateral hilar lymph node, uh, N2 being an ipsilateral mediastinal lymph node or ones below the crina, and N3, a neat lesion being either contralateral or a supraclavicular uh, mediastinal lymph node. You will be hearing things such as stations. These are um, pulmonology and CT surgery um, relevant ways of describing the hilar mediastinal lymph nodes. For us, simple medical oncologists, kind of a quick and easy way of looking at this is greater a station that's greater than 10 is a hilar lymph node. Any stations from 7 to 10 are mediastinal lymph nodes below the crina, and a lymph node station that's less than 7 is um, going to be a super... There's three... Uh, metastatic clinical stages. There's M1A, which is lung nodules in the contralateral lung, M1B being a single metastatic site, and M1C being more than one metastatic site. I think it's important to note that patients that have pleural effusions are also considered to have metastatic disease. I found that a lot of times patients find this confusing because they still consider that as just localized to the lung, but once the cancer is in the pleural fluid, then that's automatically considered stage four. Getting into histology, you're going to hear most commonly the terms non-small cell lung cancer versus small cell lung cancer, because that's probably the most important distinction at first. Non-small cell lung cancer has three main types. Adenocarcinoma is the most common, followed by squamous cell carcinoma, and lastly, large cell carcinoma. There's also less common entities such as large cell neuroendocrine, um, carcinoma, carcinoid cancers, which tend to be low-grade, atypical carcinoid, which tends to be more intermediate-grade. You can also have sarcomas in the lung, 
as well as adenoid cystic carcinomas of the lung. But the most common that we're going to be getting into is adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, small cell lung cancer, as well as large cell. Getting into some of the pathological markers, adenocarcinoma is positive for TTF1, as well as positive for CK7 and negative for CK20. Keeping in mind that um, that CK7 positive, CK20 negative will often differentiate from colon um, adenocarcinomas that are going to be CK7 negative and CK20 positive. And adenocarcinomas are the most common um, to have a driver mutation. So all patients should get tested for the driver mutations with adenocarcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma tends to be positive for P63, P40, and CK5. Uh, these rarely have driver mutations. However, you would consider checking if someone is a non-smoker or if you're concerned about a small biopsy specimen or if you have mixed histology. Mixed histology means tumors harboring both squamous and non-squamous features. Uh, by definition, it has to be at least 10% of both features present in the biopsy. And then lastly, small cell lung cancer, the kind of buzzwords that you'll see in the pathology report are that they're positive for synaptophysin and chromogranin. And these are often central lesions, and small cell lung cancers very rarely have driver mutations. Very commonly, um, patients with smoking history. Almost exclusively, very heavy, heavy smokers. Some rare exceptions, but none that I've come across at this time. Small cell lung cancers, although we do still use the typical TNM staging criteria, what's more important is whether or not these are considered extensive stage or localized stage, as based upon whether or not we can capture the lesion with a single radiation field will determine whether or not we can approach it with a curative intent or not. Large cell, although less commonly than the subtypes we've just talked about, is relevant in the sense that it's a poorly understood subtype of lung cancer. These are tumors with some neuroendocrine-like features. They have, by definition, a high KI67 proliferation rate, which differentiates them from a well-differentiated carcinoid. Often these tumors have been grouped partially into either non-small cell lung trials or small cell lung trials or not included in any trial. So we're kind of limited to expert consensus as far as what the standard of care would be. From my experience, it often the way we approach these tumors kind of resembles a hybrid of both small cell and non-small cell lung cancers. Um, the outcomes for these are not very good not commonly with the presence of driver mutations. Something that we forgot to mention when we spoke about presentation of lung cancer is SVC syndrome, which is one of the classic um, oncologic emergencies. This can be caused by a large tumor, a tumor thrombus, a large regional lymph node that has metastatic involvement. And the classic presentation is swelling of the neck or the face. They can have headaches. They can have cyanosis. You can see a lot of times, I've seen this, distended veins on their chest with the collateral circulation. So they can have shortness of breath, tachycardia. So when you suspect this, probably one of the most important things other than stabilizing the patient is to try to get a diagnosis as quickly as possible. Steroids can be used as a treatment. However, given that lymphoma is also on the differential, we try to avoid, unless it's absolutely necessary, giving steroids prior to biopsy. You would also want to speak with your radiation colleagues to make sure that they're on, on board and available, um, as well as CT surgery or IR, because rarely, but sometimes um, a stent can be used to open up the SVC. So just a word on, on the um, driver mutations, which we've talked about a few times here. Once again, these are most commonly discussed in, when we're talking about non-small cell lung cancer, particular adenocarcinoma. And what we mean by driver mutations are targeted um, individual mutations that are primarily responsible for tumor genesis. This would be not unlike the BRAF mutation that we talked about in melanoma. And in fact, BRAF 600E is an uncommon, but um, can be encountered in lung cancer as well. These are often 
tested using uh, multi-gene panels or next-generation sequencing panels. So these uh, panels may be available through your local institution, through a proprietary system, or maybe a commercial one, which is often the case in the United States with companies such as Foundation One, Keras, and Garden, depending on patient insurance coverage, will be approved. These panels test for any number of mutations and can take up to two weeks or greater to have a result. This can be very frustrating to the patient, to the inpatient medicine team who wants you to be able to provide a treatment recommendation to the patient. But it is important to wait on these, especially in someone with adenocarcinoma, as uh, the presence of some of these mutations can significantly impact outcomes. And if you there's no absolute need for chemotherapy right away. It's better to wait and be able to provide a more patient-specific uh, treatment regimen. So the most common mutation that we see is EGFR, and some of the other ones are ALK, ROS, BRAF, V600E. You can look for KRAS, G12C, as well as a RET mutation. The EGFR mutation is present in up to 15% of lung cancers. And as Ryan had mentioned earlier, your likelihood of encountering this is higher in a non-smoker. ALK mutations being of similar demographics, making up about 5%. These other mutations, although worth testing for, if you have access to a test that will include these, are well less than 1% of your lung cancers that you'll encounter. You can also test these on circulating tumor DNA, so on a blood sample, if for whatever reason you're not able to test it or the tumor tissue was insufficient or something like that. Not as sensitive as the tissue sample, but it can be done, particularly in patients with metastatic disease who might have a large tumor burden. Although very helpful, there are some known flaws with these genetic panels and tumors are heterogeneous. There's no guarantee that the biopsy sample you have is representative of the whole tumor. For mutations that are clearly um, tumorgenic and driver mutations, such as EGFR, ALK fusions, or an NTRAC fusions, it's likely that the entirety of the tumor will express these elite, um, mutations, but may not be the case for all of the mutations you'll inter- encounter. Additionally, the presence or absence of mutations can change with time, and if you have a patient that is progressing on your treatment, especially if it's a single lead that's progressing um, and the rest of the disease seems to be under control, it's worth repeating a biopsy and testing again. The other marker that is somewhat independent of these is um, PDL1 testing. So this is also going to be very important for management of lung cancer. Worth noting that PDL1 testing in uh, lung cancer is using the TPS score or tumor proportional score, not the CPS score that we've seen with breast and GI malignancies. So a bit of a shorter discussion today, but I hope this was uh, somewhat helpful of a a starting ground for for lung cancer. Certainly a difficult disease. I find the localized disease requires very complex multidisciplinary understanding of the disease. Often these stage two, stage three lung cancers end up being a focal point of um, tumor board discussions. There's a lot of differing opinions depending on where uh, local institutional preferences on how to manage these. Um, and, And definitely an area that continues to be having new evidence emerge, which will be hopefully highlighting to the best of our ability over the next few discussions. For metastatic cancers, these can often present aggressively with CNS metastases and often will require rapid identification, biopsy, diagnosis in order to get patients treatment. You can really see someone who goes from being generally unwell to bedbound within a month with this cancer when it's um, at its most aggressive way. It's certainly valuable to include all your allied specialties to not delay the diagnosis so treatment can be started as soon as possible. Lastly, um, just on, we've talked a few times about TNM staging. Um, it's certainly important for um, and high yield for the board to know the most common disease sites, so breast, lung, GI. These are not intuitive, um, and 
hard to memorize, to be honest with you. So my recommendation often is when you see a patient, if you're in the clinic, even if they've already had someone do the staging, look at their imaging, look at their reports available and and do your own staging. By practicing this with the patients in front of you, it's going to help it stay in your mind a lot easier. And then when it comes to board studying and clinic in the future, a lot more um, of a natural habit for you. So hopefully that was a useful discussion. Again, we certainly appreciate any feedback. And hopefully we see everybody in Chicago this weekend for ASCO. It's supposed to be a beautiful weekend. So we're really looking forward to it. Until next time. Take care. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors. Or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening and see you next time.